The 190 philosophical rambles are available for your consumption at comingupnext.com.au, free of charge, and you can stay up to date with all the goings and comings up next of the show by selecting your platform of choice, that's Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube. All those links are available at comingupnext.com.au, and uh, just hit subscribe. That way it's going to automate your podcast listening experience, thus keeping you abreast of all the latest rambly goodness. Hundred and ninety episodes, my friends. One hundred and ninety episodes. Welcome, welcome to the hundred and ninetieth ramble of uh, of coming up next. I'm not sure. Uh, not sure I really uh, considered what it would feel like to be this deep into um, doing a weekly podcast, doing something this consistently, this regularly. The sort of uh, the sort of people that I've had the opportunity to speak with and meet and um, and talk about podcasts with. It was teaching people how to make podcasts for a little while. The entire kind of um, entire journey to this point um it's been a wild ride so far uh the way that the show's grown i guess is um is one of the the most interesting points to reflect on where we began as a really kind of uh very very philosophical but in a more i guess spiritual kind of context talking about people's beliefs of god and death and um the meaning of life and now sort of being a little bit more specific speaking about how i guess those ideas but more related to career so more in the line in the vein of what success means and um yeah all that all those sort of topics and um I just yeah I'm not I've been I've been reflecting a lot lately um reflecting I guess because the show uh I feel like I feel like it's kind of not plateaued because I'm still meeting and speaking with amazing people that have great stories but I feel I'm feeling a little bit like a little bit lost in in the uh, in the podcast journey the podcast adventure that i uh that i embarked upon four years ago now um yeah four years ago because the melbourne grand prix has just been and i remember recording the first episode even though we didn't release it for a little bit after recording it but recording the first episode with with the grand prix in the background um and so I said on the show last week that there was going to be an announcement this week. Um, and the announcement is that uh, that after this week and next week's episodes, I'm going to put a pin in the show. Um, it's not it's not been an easy kind of consideration to arrive at uh, because I feel. 
I feel like there's so much of me now wrapped up in this show, not only in terms of actually putting it out there and, and doing it every week, which has been just a, an incredible discipline to, to have and thing to, to need to force myself to do. And, and at times I have had to really force myself to do it. Um, but, you know, the opportunity that the opportunities that I've been afforded in terms of like meeting people and like I said, speaking with people and um, I guess also on a kind of ego level, just the the um, the way that I've wrapped my own identity up in being someone who does podcasts. You know, when I started doing this podcast, there weren't a lot of podcasts being done in Australia. So I was able to sort of use that to open a lot of doors as well as uh, introduce people to the world of podcasting, to the world of podcasts. Um, so... Yeah, it's been very it's been it's been a big kind of challenge for me to to accept that I need to take a break from from doing this. Um I don't know how long the break will be even. I haven't really planned anything. I'm just I just feel compelled. I what I I was thinking let's go to 200 episodes and then and then do it, but I don't know. 191 is where we're going to do it. And uh, we're going to do it with a couple of absolutely cracking episodes. Uh, Adam Megiddo this week, who is um, who's someone who's brought improvisation uh, really into the mainstream in, uh, in the UK and I guess subsequently probably globally. Um, he, uh, he created Showstopper, the musical, which is a fully improvised uh, musical, um, he's done a lot of work with Mischief Theatre, who, uh, who created uh, the play that goes wrong. Peter Pan goes wrong. In fact, Adam directed um, Peter Pan goes wrong. Got it up in, in Australia and in New Zealand most recently. Um, and then next week, uh, the final ramble for the time being is uh, is an episode that I recorded with Guy Pierce towards the end of last year um, and that feels like a, a very fitting way to close off this chapter of podcast rambly goodness a big thank you to my guest from last week if you haven't checked out my chat with Shaylee Shackelford of uh, Sketchy you can find it at comingupnext.com.au all of the episodes that have ever been created are available for your consumption for free at comingupnext.com.au and will stay so um, at least for the time being. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all persuasions, uh, please sit back and uh, enjoy episode 190 of Coming Up Next, the podcast, after this very long, rambly introduction <laughs> uh, with my guest, Adam Megiddo. Showstopper here, is that what? Yep, we're in Showstopper till the 16th of March. Wow. And that's been, that's something that you got up first in like 2008. Mm, yeah, right? yeah. So 2008 we started. Actually, there was like a little experiment to kick it off in 2007. Right. And then we formed it properly 2008, yeah. That's pretty wild. 
to consider it's now what in its 12th year yeah 12th year we're coming to our 12th <laughs> Edinburgh festival wow this summer. and this was the first improvised show to ever win an Olivier Award as well first uh, and so far only wow okay. yeah um, we're thrilled to say that Mischief Theatre were nominated recent uh, in the last year's Olivier's, the 2018 Olivier's, in the Best New Comedy category right. for their show uh, Mischief Movie Night, which I consulted on. And that's great because, I mean, improvisation getting taken seriously and winning an Olivier is terrific, but also it being considered in that category of Best New Comedy is, is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have so many questions about improvisation and, and I mean how I suppose when you have the variable of the audience being completely new every night yeah it, it only makes sense that a show could be fresh could continue to be fresh for that for, for 12 years um, but I mean anyway I can, I can kind of circle back into that but I guess um, I'd love to sort of segue into your earlier career yeah. Speaking about how we've sort of got to this point, you mentioned before you live in in Crouch End. Is is that where you've always lived? Did you grow I've up? I've been there? a North Londoner most of my life. Yeah. Okay. I grew up in North London, actually in Wilsdon, right? Um, Northwest London, and um, yeah, that's been very familiar to me. From I've always lived in parts of North London until you know, there was a time when I went to Birmingham University. Right. Somewhere. But yeah, I've always lived up there. And your parents were both dancers as well. Both dancers and choreographers. Yeah. Right. So. You know, something I like to um, ask everyone on the show is if they remember the first time that they did what they now do for a living. Mm. So if, if there was an experience in, in childhood that sort of sticks out in your mind yeah. as particularly um, significant. Uh, I must have been about eight or nine, maybe. I guess the first thing I remember actually was playing the piano. I started learning at the, at the age of six, so that might be my first sort of connection to creativity mm. that I can remember and actually a lot of my childhood I can't remember very well but I do remember I must have been eight or nine uh, at my primary school uh, I used to organize people in the breaks to put on plays we would put we would we would um, get together and we would write something or well, very often me just kind of ordering people around <laughs> as this kind of tiny tyrant right. uh, and saying, uh, let's do this, let's do this. And, and basically whoever wanted to, that would be it. Whoever wanted to be, who could be bothered enough would be there. And then be a gang of us. And then we'd discover this sort of, we'd, we'd write like a sketch, like a comedy sketch. And then we'd beg the teacher, could we do it at the beginning of class? I think that was my first, and we did. We did that a lot. And, we would go, and then people would go, um, have you got a sketch for us? You know, <laughs> like at the age of eight, I got more work offers than I get now. Yeah, right. <laughs> was there was there were there any particular like themes, or was it like just doing sketches based on what was happening at school on that day? I only remember one, um, which was called Killer Pot. Yeah, and it was an advert for like a pot noodle thing, but it was called Killer Pot, and it was there must have been an advert at the time for a pot noodle or like a fast food thing with a family, you know, like the OXO family, you know, that sort of soap opera style commercial. And uh, it must have had um, a family that, and the mother must have said something as the punchline, because I was playing the mother, and I made this thing called Killer Pot, which killed my entire family. And then I looked out at the camera and said some kind of punchline. And that is as much as I remember. But I do remember it was called Killer Pot, it killed everyone, and I was the mother. Right. 
you were the mother. Yeah. So was was drama something that was like you were, you were very interested in when you were in primary school? Even you do, was was that the sort of class that you looked forward to? Uh, well, we didn't have a drama class at primary school. I think I can't even remember if we did plays, but I remember doing a lot of music. So music and English, that sort of thing. Those are the things I really remember. Mm. Um, and of course, I came from a very musical family because my parents always had music on in the house, and I was learning piano from a young age. And um, my father always used to edit music for his dance classes. So it would be like um, he'd have all sorts of records playing, and then he'd record them onto tape recorders and stuff. Because of course, that was the tech of the late seventies. Um, and in the early 80s, it was ghetto blasters and everything was done on cassette. So I remember that. It was constantly, and he was very deaf, so it was constantly very loud music blasting around the house. Um, so, yeah, I don't remember early drama, really, but I remember music mm. and creating a lot through music. And I guess there was like, I mean, you were obviously growing up in a very creative household. Mm. Did you feel as though... The kind of community around that. I mean, obviously, North London has changed significantly since the um, since the seventies, and it's now, I guess, a very kind of artistic and creative space. But did you feel as though there was a kind of support for people who were who had creative interests at that point in time? If there was, I, I didn't know about it. Yeah, um, I'm I'm a bit of a fantasist. I do like to live in my own head, and I've often lived in my own space, and I've often done my own thing. So I've I've kind of, whether, it, you know, it's often the case that something's going on, I just didn't know about it, I was just isolated. Whether that was by choice or circumstance, I can't always say. So I don't remember anything particular. I mean, there, was, there must have been loads of stuff going on in North London around that time, but it was, uh, it was a private and personal experience, anything to do with creativity. Mm. And it still is, really. It still is. I mean, it's lovely to share it with um, groups of people, like at the moment when we're doing Showstopper, or the London 50-hour improvathons, or any kind of, you know, with those big group community projects or teams of people improvising. It's a great joy. It is very joyful to share that creativity. But there is a part of the creative process that I think is entirely personal and maybe cannot be shared. I don't know. Certainly I'm in touch with it when I'm writing. Is it like... Now I'm asking you to share this very personal thing <laughs> that you're talking about, but <laughs> does, it, does it feel like... I mean, some people have said to me that there's... Uh, to use kind of airy-fairy sort of language, I suppose, there's something quite transcending when you're writing in particular, that, you know, there, you, you kind of get in that zone, that sort of real, real sort of presence. Um, is, that, uh, is that kind of what you mean? Like where, where it's, it's, it becomes very, a very personal experience that you're engaging in? Uh, oh, there's so much I want to say now. <laughs> so many thoughts I had as you were speaking about all sorts of different things. Um, there's a great quote, and I'm pretty sure it's David Mamet, I'm pretty sure he talks about it in his book, The Three Uses of the Knife, in which he talks about the real drives to create art. For most people, art, or for many people, it's to lessen the unbearable disparity between the conscious and the unconscious mind so as to achieve peace. I definitely resonate with that, or that resonates with me, in that I am peaceful when I'm purging these thoughts that are in my head. I don't know what form they're going to take or where they're going to end up, but they have to go through some kind of 
uh, kaleidoscope or journey where they they are fragmented and then reassembled. So it's like I, I mean, I've, obviously, all writers have different processes, and all artists have different processes, but. I, f I, f I am of the school whereby I can't help but do what I do, because otherwise I'll just be deeply unhappy. So something will just suggest itself to me, and who knows where these ideas come from, the unconscious or, uh, m you know, people who meditate might call it, say it comes from the unified field of bliss consciousness, who knows where they come from. Um, they, might, they might come in a Darren Brown sense of something you've seen that day and not even known that you've remembered it, it's sort of there. But an idea will form, and then it will, and it will just take hold of me, and I can't do anything until I've dealt with it. Um, it. It's consuming. So it might be the idea for a sitcom, and I'll write that down, or it might be a musical phrase, or it might be a character and a situation. It's like I have to explore that a bit more. It might be like, um, oh God, that would make a great musical, or it might be. I would love to get these six people together in a room and do some improv with them. So it's like it, it takes all sorts of different forms. That what they all have in common for me is that it's it's something that will burn me up if I don't explore it. And then it might lose its brightness over time, and it might fall away. And like actually, oh, I've done what I needed to do, which is think about it a bit, write some stuff down. But it's, that's as far as it will go. And some will be no, no, this has to go all the way um, and become a full play musical, project, um, journey, I don't know. At what point do you feel like you made peace with the notion that not every idea needs to be fully realised? Mm, not too long ago. Right, actually. okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was holding on to a lot of stuff thinking that everything had to be fully realised. Maybe 10 years ago. Okay. Maybe 10 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago is where I started that process. Um, 10 to 12 years ago is where I I started doing improv about 15 years ago, and I think that must be a big part of that. That's affected how I work uh, creatively a lot. I mean, like most of my work has been in improvisation for the last 15 years, although I'm increasingly crossing back into text and mainstream theatre again. Although the, the aim was actually always to cross improv into mainstream theatre, which is why, again, it's so gratifying to talk about the, uh, this wonderful project that is Showstopper, because that's, that was the goal right from the start, is let's do improv and let's do a musical. Let's put the two together rather than apologize for either form. You know what I mean? Like a, we're not apologizing for it being a musical nor are we apologizing for it being improvised, but let's bring them together and um, make a hybrid which is of the highest standard possible rather than allowing each art form to denote or degrade the other. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I totally understand. Did you feel, I suppose, when you went to drama school at Birmingham, um, like you, you mentioned before, did you feel as though there was this kind of weight on improv and on musical theatre? No. No, there was hardly any improv at all. I mean, there wasn't a... This is sort of, so this is the early 90s. Um, there was... Everyone lived in the shadow of Whose Lines It Anyway. So that was the only thing that people really knew about. There were, of course, groups around doing improv, but a lot of them were just uh, um, not known about, certainly not uh, in the way that they're known about now. Um, Birmingham University and Webber Douglas Drama School, which I went to, were both a, a, a colossal waste of time for me. Um, in what regard? In that I... I kind of knew it as, at the time as well, but I was just too cowardly to do anything about it. So at the end of my first year at Birmingham, I thought, I, this is not for me, I've got to go. I was going to go to Lecoq in Paris and do physical theatre. 
And I just kind of thought, oh, I've done a year. Oh, the degree would be useful. Maybe if I stick out, yeah, three year. And I just thought, "Mm, stick it out. Maybe I was scared of the big shift, learning a new language, going to a new country. Um, But looking back, I absolutely always was meant to go there. Was always meant to go there, and the rest was killing time. Um, It just wasn't. There's the more I look into all of this work, like any kind of art form, the more I look into any of them, the more it it opens up, and the more you realise anything is possible. So the minute you have any kind of didactic, this is how things must be done, or you've got to do this, um, it it seems to be very worrying. It's about what what can encourage the most freedom of expression. I think freedom of exploration and freedom of expression. Of course there are disciplines that you have to learn in any art form, absolutely. Everyone learning the piano has to learn their scales and they require diligence and precision to the point of boredom. Um, But in terms of the subject, it's just so much bigger than anyone ever seemed to let on that it was. Everyone seemed to make it a smaller field uh, and a less exciting field until I met Ken Campbell when I was in my early thir- mid-thirties. And Ken was the great seeker and the great awakener of people. Um, and for those who don't know about Ken Campbell, he was, um, he was a real force. He uh, is famous for a number of things, amongst them opening the Cottesloe Theatre, as it was then called, at the National Theatre, uh, with a, I think it was a nine-hour production of the Illuminatus trilogy. Wow. <laughs> um, I can't remember if it was nine hours. I'm sure someone will correct me on that. But he also then uh, famously staged Neil Oram's 22 and a half hour play, The Warp, which is the longest ever scripted stage play. And um, productions of which I think are still done occasionally by his daughter, Daisy, uh, who has uh, kept, kept on with that extraordinary work herself. Um, and a number of other things, some of his performances as well. You might know Ken from Faulty Towers, the episode of the anniversary where he plays the annoying uh, guest Roger. Yep. Uh, he's great. Um, but Ken, as a teacher, was pretty extraordinary and awoke those in his presence to the true wonder of it all, rather than narrowing the field, which so many of my previous teachers had seemed to do. What do you mean by narrowing the field? Like, kind of stripping away possibility in, in, in place of restriction? Um, by talking about things in a very earthbound sense, like right and wrong, okay, which I, I, I totally get has a place. Like, of course, there are places like socially very useful to talk about right and wrong. <laughs> Politically, very useful yep. to talk about right and wrong. Um, artistically, I don't know. I don't know. It's much more interesting to um, to look at possibility. I think he once found, he was on, once on a radio show being interviewed, and I think he barked at all the guests. You're all talking about what is. I'm talking about what isn't. And th- there was always this, and a magnificent sense of the other with Ken. It's like, yeah, you could do all these things, but you could also do this. And there was a, always an invitation to something utterly extraordinary, life-changing, mind-bending, time-warping. Uh, that that obviously doesn't happen in most teachers. Yeah. Even even like really good teachers who I'd credit as being great solid teachers of the craft, every now and again you need a Ken Campbell, mm. uh, a great awakener. And I didn't find that till I was in my mid-thirties, so right. uh, to me my journey is still quite new. 
Yeah. In about 15 years. Is Ken still around? No, sadly not. Yeah. No, he passed away um, 10, 11 years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, so meeting him, I guess, around the same time that you embarked on this improv. Well, he was the spur for me to get right, into improv. Okay. I, I, I had always avoided improv up until that point. So sort of between, um, you know, going to, so you eventually went to Lecoq? No, I never went to Lecoq. No, okay. No, I stayed at Birmingham University. Right. Like a prison sentence. And then worse, went to Weber Douglas, which was worse. <laughs> Thankfully, it was only one year, but what okay. a shithole. Yeah, right. What a dreadful, dreadful experience that was. So what were you doing between, um, between doing that and meeting Ken? Well, I was trying to make it. <laughs> I was trying to, you know, get on and, and make a living out of... Um, being a, to start with being an actor, yeah. but within days, like I mean, I can kid you not, within days, I realised, oh, actually, I don't think this is how I want to make my living. I like doing it, but I don't want to have to go through the, I don't want to go through the processes that all these uh, that actors are often forced to go through. I just don't want to do that. I don't want to waste any of my time doing that. It's just not for me. I know I'm, you know, obviously I have many, many friends who are actors, and um, and many uh, I have. I'm privileged to know a lot of absolutely excellent, really excellent actors. I'm always amazed by how they do it and how they uh, deal with it as a lifestyle. It's just not for me. Uh, so I got into all sorts of other things, writing, directing, composing, and, and creating, and devising, and all that stuff. But improv was always just like a horror thing. Like, well, what the, why would anybody do that? It looks uh, like a place where people go to compete to be the funniest or the loudest. And being neither, I just wasn't interested in it at all. So um, I thought, that's, that's ridiculous, I'm not going to do that. And I got into script theatre, directing. Um, I, I was very young trying to direct and kind of got my fingers burnt quite a lot of the time. You started a theatre company as well at that point? Yeah, I was with um, some friends. We'd graduated from both Birmingham and Weber Douglas. We set up a theatre company called Counterpoint Theatre. We did a number of uh, shows uh, for a few years. And then I, I, I just, again, I kind of got this restlessness of like, I don't know, I need to do something. This isn't quite right for me. And then I went off and I just, for a long time, I was just unemployed and could not work out what it is I wanted to do. Then I set up my own company, but never had really any money or any resources to do anything with. So it was always a, a colossal struggle to get anything done. It was massively stressful, although I learned a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot having to you know, run your own company. Um, and then, I, and then I, I was just increasingly lost and I just luckily, Luckily got to meet Ken Campbell. So I had quite a lot of traditional theatre stuff, both as an actor and a writer and a director. And, mm. and, and, and spent a lot of time in the wilderness going, why am I doing this? What is this? Should I do this? Yeah, I've definitely uh, had my moments of that, actually not very recently as well. Uh, what do you feel like you kind of learned? You said you learned a lot from running your own theatre company, what were some of those things? A lot of it is literally the nuts and bolts of things. Yeah. You know, how to fill in forms and stuff like that and, and just how to deal with people and uh, how relentless you have to be and how many phone calls it takes and um, how many emails it takes and just the relentlessness of it, the um, persistence that is required, the dogged persistence to stop at nothing and keep it going, otherwise everything falls apart. And you, you, can't, you can't tell everyone you're doing this, get them all on board and then let it fall apart. So. Um, it's once you share it with a community and you promise them things, there is no way out of the contract, whether that's an actual physical paper contract or an agreement that's made between people. You, ha you have to deliver it. Um, and 
that was deeply stressful, uh, but it also taught me that I could do it. If I had to do it, I could do it. Um, it was a focus for all my energy and my drive and my will. Um, and I was not good, I'm not good at producing. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm full of admiration for those who do it very, very well. It's not my skill, but I had to do it in order to make things happen because there was no one else who was really willing to do it. Um, and I got to meet a lot of interesting people, people that I still work with to this day. Got to, um, I set up a thing called the Terror Seasons, which was the first annual festival of horror theatre and Grand Guignol, trying to reinvent the old Grand Guignol from like the late 19th century Paris, the whole kind of um, strange movement of people who would write plays rather quickly, short plays, based upon what was going on in current affairs and reflect the horrors of the time. Um, uh, something which, sort of in 1897, I think the Grand Guignol really started, but then after 20 years it started to morph into something else and then slowly went into its decline. But I thought there was something in the germ of that idea that's really interesting and fresh, and I guess that was kind of me at the roots of improv without knowing that I was at the roots of improv. Uh, but then I would, I would ask all sorts of writers to contribute, and to my amazement, they all did. You know, people like um, Neil LeBute uh, wrote for us, and Mark, oh, wow. Mark Ravenhill wrote for us, and uh, April DeAngelis, and Jack Thorne, and uh, Lucy Kirkwood, amazing writers, uh, would write you know, short 20-minute pieces inspired by what Grongignol meant to them. And there were some fantastic pieces, but putting those things together was always an absolute nightmare. Uh, it was, uh, there was hardly anyone to work on with it, uh, or to work with on it. Um, there were, uh, it, it was always deeply stressful, there was never enough money, we'd always be lucky if we could scrape together £10,000 to put on a whole season of stuff. So it was, it was a lot of the time I spent on the phone trying to persuade people that this was a good idea and that they should do it for free. Mm. And, you know, that is how a lot of art does get created. And yeah. that, that's, no, that's no bad skill to learn. No. It's how to try inspire people with your vision. Mm. And then, of course, if your vision backfires, it's embarrassing, and then you've got to pick up the pieces and go again. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully those experiences become few and far between as you progress. Yeah, I hope so. I don't know. You're, I think it, you've got to be allowed to really screw up uh, and of course we're in a profession that does not allow you to screw up but if you really want to experiment you have to push the boundaries such that you do screw up quite a lot of the time mm. that's difficult of course if you're you know dealing with people friends friends who are trusting you and doing things for free uh, it creates a strain on everything in your life and relationships everything mm. so it's deeply demanding um, it is hugely rewarding um, it's 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 rewarding because of that thing that I started talking about ages ago, which is if that idea is burning you, and you've got to purge it, and if the form for it being purged is uh, three weeks at the Union Theatre putting on twelve different shows by some fantastic playwrights off ten thousand pounds, then that's the form it takes. That's what it's going to be, and until I've done it, I'm not going to sleep at night because that thing is burning in my brain or in my soul. It's going to keep me alive. Mm. It's going to keep me awake. And I suppose moving into improv is like the ultimate kind of um, walking the plank, so to speak. You know, there's, there's very little room for error, I guess, in, yeah. uh, when, you, when you're putting yourself out there in terms of like the probability of failure seems to be much higher than of success when, you're, when you have that kind of, uh, when those, the stakes are that high. 
Well, again, we have to look at things like what success and failure. What actually are they? Yeah. Um, and, and put them in their context because, you know, in improv we keep talking about the fear of failure. Like, oh, don't be afraid to fail. And there is amongst improvisers when they're studying, there is a lot of the time like a, a an attempt to cushion the blow of failure so that you go, hey, it wasn't failure, don't worry about it. We're all a lovely team and it's fine. It doesn't matter. Failing is fun. But no, it's not. Failing hurts. <laughs> Failing always hurts. And actually, I never learned... I can't remember many lessons I learned where uh, they, the true lessons have come with some pain. The most useful lessons have been pretty painful lessons to learn. So take, taking away the... Uh, uh, trying to cushion that blow of failure can be detrimental to your own development. But also, then there's another argument, which is, well, can you fail in improvisation if you are actually using the process of, processes of improvisation, which is effectively to work with whatever is there, not with what isn't, but what's actually present in the room, then you kind of can't fail. <laughs> the failure is something that happens in the, in the, in the personal process uh, and how we process moments on stage and what we do and what they mean to us. In terms of actually delivering to an audience, if you're following the craft of improvisation, you can't fail. You can't fail because there's no such thing as failure. There's um, the music composer, the, the composer John Cage said, failing is sort of beside the point, or mistakes actually, he was talking about mistakes. Mistakes are beside the point, he says, because once something happens, it authentically is. Like once something's happened, that's it, that's it, we're working with it, that is it. It's only a failure if you pretend it isn't happening. You see this sometimes on stage in um, amateur acting. Um, the wonderful world of amateur acting, of Amdram. Uh, you might, actually I say Amdram, but my God, I've seen it in all sorts of theatre, professional theatre as well. Two actors perform, a bunch of actors performing a scene and a bit of the set falls down. <laughs> and they pretend it hasn't happened. Have you ever had this sort of experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah? yeah. So it's like, we're pretending it hasn't happened. Well, everyone has seen it. It authentically is. It's only a failure if you refuse to address that point. You could even then argue it's still not failing. It's clown. You moved into the world of clown. We talked earlier about mischief theatre. Well, mischief theatre created an entire empire based upon this idea. Sets of the set apart. falling down, but they're pretending not to notice. Yeah. The show's going wrong, but they're carrying on anyway. And there's something very fundamental about that that I think people respond to. That's why it's gone worldwide. I think something like 20 countries now, the play that goes wrong has uh, played in. So, um, uh, yeah, oh God, my God, I'm rambling. But it's, it, there's, there's so much in that, the idea of success and failure, and in improv, how it deals with the subjects of success and failure. Mm. You know, um, clown work is all about failure. Like, who are we in the face of failure as human beings when we think we're failing socially? What do we do to kind of conceal that awkward moment of horror? That is where the clown is often born. That's where a clown emerges. So uh, there's so much in that. It's a rich area, failing and failure and success. And ultimately, who's setting the yardsticks for it? Who's actually defining it? It's, it's a tough one. Mm. Is this uh, like philosophically something that Ken sort of opened your mind to? I th I think in in that he turned me on to improvisation because uh, and and Ken wasn't someone who'd studied improvisation in the same way you can study it now in. Well, you can study it here in London or all over the UK, but maybe 15 years ago there were fewer places you could go to to study it. 
it wasn't like he studied it, it was just he had the spirit of it. And um, he said, if you're going to improvise, it's got to be better than the scripted stuff. And he, he wasn't just referring to the fact that the result should be better than scripted stuff. Like if you had a time to write it down, it would be better because seldom it is, it's seldom the case. It's more a reference to the spirit of the thing. That the spirit of the thing captures the liveness of the theatrical experience, which scripted theatre, rehearsed theatre, very often does not. It really fails to um, uh, uh, to, to cash in on the fact that it is a live medium. Um, and you see, sometimes people use quite a lot of gimmicks to make it uh, look like a live medium. Um, but theatre is live, and it should always feel live, and you should feel as a member of the audience, that it's essential that you were there that night. The play would not have happened had you not been there. I got that the first time I was down at the Globe, and I saw, you know, an actor looked into my eyes. I was stood there among the groundlings, and that actor looked into my eyes and then said something, and I thought, oh my God, I made that happen. Hmm. If they hadn't have looked at me in that moment, they wouldn't have said that moment, that line in the way they said it. Uh, so it's, um, uh, it's an extraordinary thing to, to, to recapture theatre's liveness, and that's what improv did. Ken had just come back, when I met him, he'd just come back from Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, where he'd seen a group called Dynasty perform a soap opera that was improvised. And he was so taken with it that he said, right, let's do some improv, improvise. And he just made us start improvising. He'd also been commissioned by Mark Rylance to do a thing at the Globe for Shakespeare's birthday. This is back in April 2005. So when we started working with him, he said, do you reckon you could improvise in the style of Shakespeare? I said, I have no idea, I don't know. He said, it's one thing, it's got to be, it's got to improve on the original. <laughs> so it's like, so like, fucking hell, okay, that's where we're going to start. Yeah. That was my start, that was my introduction to improv, was, right. can I improvise better than Shakespeare? So, of course I come from a very different background. I assume this was playing Yes, Let's. Well, <laughs> it was like a, uh, Yay, Let's. I mean, it was... Um, it was just an extraordinary throw yourself into the deep end, see what works, see what doesn't work, look at your colleagues. We actually filmed some of those sessions, and I've got the film footage still. I watched it not long ago, and everything was so slow. It's like everything was happening in slow motion. We were just so scared to be mm. immediate and to do something immediately. I'm surprised Ken had the patience with us that we did. But what we learned as we went on was just the joy of immediacy. Um, so the improv thing, I came to it through an unusual route because Ken himself came to it through an unusual route. And it wasn't like now you can go to classes and you can do levels in improv and, and things which, which the American and Canadian systems have had for many years. It's, it's, still, it's still much newer to us over here. It wasn't like that for me at all. It was using your understanding of theatre, what can you do without a script? And I still think that's actually the best place to go from. Like your understanding of theatre and how theatre works or the medium that you're working in. Use your understanding of that to forge something fresh in the moment is actually a lot more useful than a lot of the rules that are, are um, taught in improvisation because rules work in some situations and then they just don't work in others. And I think it's useful to think of them more as guidelines, tips, techniques, but to really look at uh, and this is what I've just finished writing a book on the subject, is, is basically look at the principles of improvisation and not worry so much about the rules. Like Knowing them is good, like knowing why they've been created is good, knowing 
uh, when to use them, when to discard them is good. But basically the principles are everything. And the principles of improvisation are fairly simple. Just as the principles of chess or poker are simple, but the playing of them and the mastery of them is a lifelong uh, journey. Mm, it's the notes you don't play, right? Yeah, it can be. Yeah, and know, knowing what those notes are and choosing not to play them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I guess it wasn't really that long then into your improv uh, or into starting improv that you created Showstopper then. It's only, what, three, yeah. three years or so? Yeah, I mean, there's that old quote, which is, we teach best that which we most want to learn. I mean, I started teaching improv very quickly because I was so keen to learn about it yeah. um, and create an environment in which I could study it as well. So apologies to all my students at the beginning of my teaching career. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I teach very differently now to how I did, say, 15 years ago. But yeah, in Showstopper, it was let's get together. It was really a vision. I really believed that it was possible to improvise a musical. I just Not an improv show with songs, not something that w was knockabout or fun, and again, no um, disrespect to any of those shows or, or, or groups who were doing it back then. I just hadn't seen what it is that I had in my head. That was all. I just hadn't seen anyone do what it was that I had in my head. Maybe there are groups all over the world doing it. I just never saw them. And what was in my head was, I really think you could do an amazing musical with a group of people, but I think it could all be made up. That was it. Um, and that was the vision that me and Dylan Emery had talked about a lot and we'd shared and he came from the improv background and I came from the musical theatre background and we said let's put our heads together and, and get a team together and do it. Mm. That's how it started. How do you go about building a show that's fully improvised? Well you need the right people um, and it takes a while to find your tribe I think. Um, you know, in, in over the years in Showstopper, we've had many magnificent people join the group but not stay there for long. Because there's a sort of alchemy at work. It's like people that I still love dearly and respect hugely, but then they don't quite fit for whatever reason, just whatever reason it just wasn't working. There's a sort of alchemy at work there. Uh, and sometimes that's utterly undefinable. You can't really explain why that's happening. I think we got very, very lucky right at the start of Showstopper with the group that we put together had the right alchemy. So I think a lot of it is the group. Um, a lot of it, for me, is the spirit of the venture. So I maintain to this day that the reason so many people put up with watching us early in the early days was our naivety, that we were charming and naive because we were, we were trying to do something. Coming back to this point of failing, it was just funny when we didn't reach the height we'd set ourselves. So it's aspirational passionate and aspirational but inevitably we just didn't get there but the clown of that clown moment of how we fell from the perch or how we fell off the tightrope that clown moment was charming and naive I think I hope and I think it's why enough people followed us even when we didn't really know what the hell was going on and what we were doing at all um, you could of course argue and I'm going to argue that we still don't know what we're doing uh, <laughs> it's a lifelong search it never um, it never ends but uh, recently before we did this run uh, I mean we're currently in the middle of a run at, at the other palace theatre um, and before we before we started this run we had a little get together we usually do like three or four days of, of training um, and I said to the group we have to be we have to tap into that thing of being naive clowns again and never lose sight of that and the game is that we're too naive 
or we're too stupid to realise how impossible this is. Um, and I think if we keep that in the forefront of the game, then I think it will continue to be a successful show. I think the minute we lose that, if it becomes in any way smug or self-congratulatory or showy, uh, I think it's problematic. I think that's probably true of so many things, not just Showstopper. So the rest of the time, is, is, a lot of it is about the group and a lot of it is about the right alchemy and then trying to work out how we're going to get the best out of everyone collectively and individually. And then an awful lot of time spent studying musicals, studying stories, how stories are made, genres, you know, just a lot of, a lot of homework, basically. Ongoing and never-ending because, of course, new musicals crop up every year and we have to know them because they might get referenced in our particular show. And for anyone who doesn't know what, what I'm talking about in terms of Showstopper, it's uh, we improvise a musical, but we, we get all, everything that we do come from the audience, so the, the setting, the title, uh, but also we do m songs in the style of other musicals. So one night you might get a song in the, in the style of The Lion King, something by Stephen Sondheim, something by Andrew Lloyd Webber, something by Lin-Manuel Miranda, or whatever. I suppose uh, I'm conscious of, uh, of the time, and I, I mean, there's so much to kind of, that we could dig into. It's like what we were talking about earlier, it's like, it's so massive, it's yeah. so huge, and the more you look into it, the more it just opens up. up. Yeah. It's, it's vast, this subject. I suppose to sort of helicopter over, um, I guess, some key moments in your career, you know, starting to work with like Mischief Theatre, like you said before, um, how, how did that sort of happen? What, how did that, how was that different to what you were already doing? You know, building more of your own shows, starting the um, London Improvathon, yeah. which is, you know, a record-breaking improv uh, show. I mean, there's, there's so many uh, amazing highlights and also so much kind of like philosophically to get yeah. into. I've just thrown a whole lot of ideas at you, so you respond. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Mel Mischief is a joy working on Mischief Theatre. They're extraordinary um, people. Um, so I taught them at Lambda. They were at Lambda and um, I was teaching and I was kind of just getting into the improv bug, so I was teaching improv as much as I could at Lambda. They are part of the early group who had to suffer me as an early, uh, in my early days of improv teaching. But it did, I mean, they did set up an improv company and they still improvise a lot and I still work with them um, as a consultant on their improv shows and they're very, very good at it. Very, very good at it. They're fast, they're funny and they care about it a lot. They have that, um, I guess, like what you were saying before, that kind of, not that they are naive, but they present that sort of like, we can do, like the, as in the shows present that idea, especially yeah. the, show, the, the play that goes wrong that we can achieve this yes in the in the face of any sort of aspiration. adversity yeah that aspiration there's a, there's a passion there's a real aspiration there and there's a real heart to the shows as well and um uh yeah they are excellent at improv funny enough you know all their shows are based upon playing people who can't improvise their way out of trouble <laughs> they're all playing actors who when the set falls down don't know what to say or what to do and they get themselves in more trouble as a result they can't just be in that moment. They're frozen and they're locked in panic and clown work. Um, and that's really the, like, the whole goes wrong brand. And it is a brand now. It really is worldwide. It's a brand. It's a thing. You just set up uh, Peter Pan Goes Wrong in New Zealand and Australia, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so Peter Pan Goes Wrong is, the, is um, one of the shows that I've directed and it's a joyous piece and it's just been touring. Uh, it's coming to the end of its tour. Uh, it's been in New Zealand and Australia and it's, just, it's currently playing in Perth and will uh, finish its run there. And there are plans to, uh, to bring it back in numerous places, and it's starting to find its way across the world as well. 
what are I guess some of the challenges that you know um, with setting up a show in another country and then not being there for the run? Uh, I did manage to go back and check up on it, and I would have loved to have gone back again. Uh, and I love that cast and crew very much, so it would have been very nice to go back and see everybody. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's, the, it's the same with any play that you get it up and running, and then you, you're moving on as a director, you move on to something else. You trust that it's like it's going to be there, or your job is just done. Your job is your, your job is done. I mean, a lot of people really do. A, some directors really kind of abandon those shows. Um, it's a question of how you communicate to the people involved. Uh, the strategies and the philosophies of how to maintain the show, um, and I guess you've got to you've got to inspire people to want the same thing as you, um, and that often doesn't happen. But that's quite a tricky thing. It's like not only do you get the show up and running, but you get the show up and running and communicate what it is in such a way that they will maintain it uh, when you've gone. And of course, you've got a great resident director on the show, and um, I've got an assistant director and now a resident director in the UK. So there are other people looking after the show as well, and, and that and the joy of that show. I think one of the big things about that show is its heart. It's got such a great big beating heart in, in the centre of all the disasters that are going on. I think that has to be looked after. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, to, to kind of start circling the drain and wrapping up, um, and there's yeah, so many things that we didn't, that we haven't gone into, but this idea of success is something that I, you know, speak about pretty, um, frequently with people and we sort of touched on it before I suppose for you personally you know when you were at um, let's say Birmingham studying drama versus you know now when you start a show how do you feel as though your personal idea of what it, what it means to be successful has evolved of what it means to be successful yeah or what or what a success is it's a great question. I mean, it's because because it, everyone's always chasing it, aren't they? They're always sort of, are, are you successful? Have you made it? Uh, I remember in the mid '90s, this company that I was working with my friends, we'd left Weber Douglas. Was it '95, '96? We did a production of the Long and the Short and the Tall, a classic kind of Second World War play by Willis Hall, and we were about to open it uh, at the Brixton Shore Theatre, but we'd already befriended Bill Kenwright, the producer. And we, I think we were just about to open it. Maybe we'd done two shows, I think, uh, or just a couple of shows. And then a theatre went dark in the West End. And Bill said, can you bring it? Would you want to bring the piece in? So suddenly, out of nowhere, we transferred into the West End. And the great actor Bert Kwok was in it, and he was playing the Japanese soldier in that piece. And I remember one night we opened in the West End with this big party. The news was all over us because we transferred unknown bunch of people to like a bunch of young people suddenly transferring to the West End. And I was I got a lift home from Bert Kwok in his limousine and with a glass of champagne, <laughs> sitting in the back, age twenty six, with a glass of champagne. And I remember thinking, is is this making it? Is this it? Is this making it? What? What is happening? And of course it's not. It's not. It's just a thing that you do. So it's such an illusion, the whole success thing is so difficult. Ultimately it's like, what is your definition of it? What are you trying to do? For me, if I can, I'm, I consider something to be successful if I've had the idea and then it becomes realised and it's gone on. The success is nothing to do with its appreciation critically. 
because uh, some things will get, some things have been received well, some things have not. I've had love letters and death threats. Right. You know, it's just like, it doesn't matter. Am, am I happy with it? Am I happy with what I'm doing? Because you can win all the awards and still be unhappy with yourself and your own work, and the flip side is true as well. You can be, you know, writing stuff that you think is really good and, and no one's really watching it. So I think the success thing is, can I realise the idea? That thing that comes into my head suddenly at three in the morning, oh, what's that? Oh, God, now I'm going to be... That's another six years of my life on that one now. <laughs> uh, can I follow it to its fruition? You know, they say, don't they, you know, for screenwriters, if you get 60% of what you imagined up on the screen, you're doing really well. Um, and that's something to argue about, because you might say, well, why would you have to make so many compromises? And there are other people who go, 60%, you're lucky. I'll be lucky if I get 10%. So it, it, the process of realising the idea is what involves all the other people. And then the involving of other people inevitably involves politics. And then they're in a whole different game, a whole different world. But for me, if I can realise the idea, have the idea, see it to fruition and feel, yes, that is kind of what I wanted or that has, has surpassed what it is that was in my head. These other people have come on board and been excited by the same thing that excited me and now they've taken it to an even higher level. That, for me, is success. And I'm thrilled when I achieve that. And um, I think I am achieving that more as I get older because I'm getting more used to cutting away the stuff that doesn't work and working with the people where I know it will work. And I guess every time you're stepping out into a show that's fully improvised is another chance to hit that sort of mark, hit yeah, that strap. And, and sometimes you can see the show that you think it could have been just gently drifting off like a train leaving the right. platform <laughs> and you're stuck in the show that you're currently in. Yeah. And it's like, ah, we could have gone there. But no, we can't think about that. We have to be where we are right now. Yeah. Um, just so much of it is just stripping away your ego, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because so many people are in this particular profession or any creative profession because of an ego drive. Yeah. So, again, I come back to that Mamet quote, the, the lesson the unbearable disparity between the conscious and the unconscious mind and, and so achieve peace. And I might modify it slightly because I've been meditating. I've been doing transcendental meditation for a few years. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and so you might say the unbearable disparity between the conscious, unconscious, and superconscious yeah. or supraconscious mind to achieve peace. You might stop putting it on three levels rather than two. <laughs> that would be a really hard uh, mantra to condense into your TM practice, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but I like the, um, I've been using the whole idea of the mantra and thoughts uh, in teaching of improv quite a lot in that in transcendental meditation you have a mantra and while you're focusing on your mantra, or you're saying your mantra, you have all these thoughts going around. And it's very much like you have an improvisation, you're doing a thing, but while you're doing the thing, you've got this commentary going on in your head. Often quite a lot of judgment, particularly for people when they're starting to study improvisation. It's like just this horrible judgment going on about everything that you're doing and revealing. Um, so it's just, well, have your mantra and you just have your thoughts, but just innocently favor your mantra. And that phrase, innocently favor the mantra, I'm finding very powerful in almost everything I'm doing at the moment. And whenever I'm getting caught up, stressed or tense, I just innocently favour the mantra, which in meditation is the mantra I was given by my teacher, but in improvisation it's the other person. I just look at the other person. Whatever's going on, I can just look at the other person and say what I see going on in them. That immediately I'm now connected, I'm live, I'm in the moment, I'm outwardly focused. 
So this uh, innocently vaguely the mantra is such a powerful, wonderful idea. And a fucking brilliant way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, <laughs> Adam. Thank you. Um, I actually have one last question, which is, I've been told recently a very random way to end these conversations, mm -hmm. but the yeah. question is, and I, I, it's going to be, I guess, a take your pick sort of situation, but what makes you silly? That's a really good question. What makes me silly? That's interesting. I, I, I don't have an immediate answer. I'm, I'm going to find something, though, because I like being silly, and I do like silliness. <laughs> Love silliness. Uh, Ken Campbell used to say, silly plus silly equals stupid. In other words, if you, have, if you do something that's silly in a silly way, it's kind of, it can't get hold of it. But if you have a silly concept and you perform it with aspirational passion, as if it's high tragedy, for example, then it's just, you know, it's wonderful. What makes me silly? I don't know, probably uh, working too hard? Yeah. Uh, being up too long? Uh, stress can make me silly. Other people being silly can make me silly, can encourage me to be silly and playful. Laurel and Hardy. I don't think there's a better... Uh, force of comedy ever committed to film yeah. <laughs> than Laurel and Hardy and it makes me want to be so joyfully silly and in the big shows that we do like the London Improvathon which is a 50 hour long show and some people are improvising and awake for all 50 hours that's fucking crazy uh, it's beautiful it's a beautiful wonderful communal yeah. thing maybe uh, silly is a better word than crazy yeah well, and crazy too like it's and damaging it's actually really bad for you but you know, it's just so <laughs> addictive um, but I think uh, the idea of doing that 50 hours is because after 30 hours awake, the bit of your brain that senses you falls asleep or, or can't function anymore. So you're, you're free and you find great silliness uh, and a, joy, a, a real joyful release, kind of silly joyful release in that sleep deprivation. Um, and then the challenge is, okay, how can I get there without the sleep dep? How can I just go there? Mm. Um, why do you ask? Why do you ask that one? Uh, I was brought up, um, my grandfather had this uh, way that he would sign off every like speech that he would do, like family occasions or functions or whatever, which was that we should always remember the 11th commandment, thou shalt laugh especially at thyself. Right. And so when I started um, putting this podcast together, which is like four years ago now, I thought, well, this could become, this could border into becoming a little bit too earnest because mm -hmm. of some of the subject matter actually when we when i started it we'd talk about a lot uh, we talk a lot about people's kind of spiritual beliefs as well mm -hmm. and it was a little bit more sort of big picture instead of more specific um and so i thought what's the best way to make sure that if if the whole thing just becomes terribly serious mm -hmm. yeah that at least we can end with something that's kind of amusing yeah but it's a very it's a very interesting question because it's not about what do you find silly, it's what makes you silly. What will provoke silliness in you? Well, that's your interpretation. Some people. Well, that's have, what I heard. Yeah, yeah. some yeah. people have because it's kind of and this was I said it was intentional, but it wasn't. But it's it's grammatically ambiguous, so uh -huh. it, you could one could interpret it as what are traits about you that are silly, or right. what is stimulus that makes that turns you silly. Yeah, I heard. See, that's interesting. So I heard. What would make you silly? That's sort of what it, like. What circumstances would you have to be in, or mm. what would the stimulus be to be silly? That's how I 
received the question. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for your answer. <laughs> no problem. And thank you very much for this chat. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.